Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Good morning. Um, welcome again to Hope. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Hope. We are so glad that you are here with us this morning. Um, if you have not been at Hope, it might be helpful to know that we have been in a sermon series on the book of Hebrews, and we are continuing that this morning. And I wanted to start by sharing a, a little personal story or anecdote. Um, this past summer, I went on a trip, I call it a trip and not a vacation for a reason, but I went on a trip with my extended family to Europe. Now, it was amazing in a lot of different ways, uh, but it was, it was kind of a whirlwind. And um, towards the end of this trip, last, one of the last legs of this trip, we needed to travel from the city of Rome to the city of uh, Salzburg in Austria. And um, now there's a a beautiful way to travel through the the Alps by train to get from Rome to Salzburg. Um, But in a way, it is easier said than done, particularly for Americans who are not used to taking trains in Europe. Part of the reason that this is complicated is because there is a very specific train schedule that you must meet in order to make the right trains to get there, and it involves a couple of transitions from one train to another. And so our train leaving Rome to go towards Salzburg uh, was a little bit behind schedule, which really pressed us to be able to make the next train that we needed to make. And so we got off the train, and mind you, we have about two weeks' worth of luggage with us and um, quite a large group of family trying to, to make this trip. And so we're, we're running as fast as we can with all of our suitcases, all of our luggage, and we get to the elevators and of course they're broken. And so this might have been a grace actually, uh, which, you, which will make sense in a moment, but we, we run down the stairs trying to get all of our luggage down the stairs and we run underneath the tracks to try to get to the next track where our next train is supposed to be. And we get up to the tracks, and we are, we're hoping that this is the right train to get on. And so I approached one of the, the workers that appeared to be in the uniform of one of the employees of the train station, and I asked them, and I showed them the ticket even, and said, does this train take us to Salzburg? And uh, the person who was working didn't even look at the ticket, but just kind of matter-of-factly said yes, and then continued talking with another train station employee and pretty much ignored us at that point. But I thought, okay, we have the information that we need. This train goes to Salzburg, Salzburg this must be the train. So I yelled at my family, let's get, let's get on the train, let's get on the train before it takes off without us. So we all, we all get on the train and you know, we're riding and it's beautiful, the mountains all around us, it's very picturesque. But we start stopping at train stations that aren't making sense to me in light of our schedule. Um, 
And part of the reason for that is because this is supposed to be an express train, and we're stopping frequently. This isn't a very express train, and with each stop, my anxiety levels keep rising. Are we on the right train? Are we on the right train? Um, and so eventually, we show our tickets to one of the other passengers around us, and we're like, is this, a, this is what we have a ticket for? Are we on the right train? And they're like, this isn't that, this isn't that train. So we're like, okay, we are on the wrong train. Um, and we, we need to be able to keep up with the schedule to be able to actually make it to Salzburg, where our hotel is for the night. We don't want to get stuck in the middle of nowhere. So we're like, well, we have to get off the train, and, and we're not on the right one. We need to figure out, we need to get to the train station and figure out how to get on the right train to get where we're going. So we kind of frantically rush off the train. We get to the train station. We're looking at the boards. We have the tickets in our hands. And there's, there's conversation among us at family at this point. The anxiety levels have risen among all of us, right? And so if you're a bystander watching what's happening right now, you can imagine what this looks like. There's some of us who are bringing up, like, how did we get on the wrong train in the first place? Um, and other of us are saying, like, I don't see our, the train we're supposed to be on anywhere on this board. What are we going to do? And, you know, this nice Austrian man uh, walks up to us and says, it looks like you could use some help. <laughs> and I thought to myself, why would you say that? <laughs> um, yes, we, we did need some help. Um, we were disoriented. We had lost track of where we were, where we were going. We didn't know the way. And this caused us to have pretty high anxiety levels. And um, in so many ways, the preacher of the book of Hebrews is a lot like this Austrian man. The preacher of the book of Hebrews recognizes that there is anxiety in this early church, that they, that they feel disoriented, that they feel stressed, that in a way perhaps they might have lost their way. And so he calmly comes to them to try to help them, not just to experience his calm, but to have tangible help to help them on their way. And this is so much of what the preacher of Hebrews is doing this morning. And so what, what I want to say is that there's a, there is some overlap, I would argue, between our church today and what that early church experienced almost 2,000 years ago that received this message from the preacher of Hebrews. And there are also some significant differences, however. There are significant differences between our experience today and their experience, not just cross-culturally, but over the span of these 2,000 years. There are some differences that are worth noting, and the reason they're worth noting is that it will help us to hear the message of Hebrews in a way that is helpful and relevant to us. And so, uh, there is a New Testament scholar named William Lane, who did a lot of background research about what must have been going on in this community that prompted the preacher of Hebrews to give this message to them. And this is what he says. He says, The assembly was in crisis. Their numbers had been depleted. And those who remained were subject to a loss of confidence in their convictions. Their former sense of identity as the new covenant people of God had been undermined. 
process, they are no longer listening to the voice of God. Their formerly bold commitment in the face of public abuse, imprisonment, and loss of property has given way to discouragement and weariness of sustaining their Christian confession in the face of hostility. It's Hebrews' presentation of the way in which God responds to the human family as the God who speaks, the God who creates, the God who covenants, the God who pledges, the God who calls and commits himself. This is intended to breathe new life and might I add a sense of calm and peace into men and women who experience a failure of nerve because they live in an insecure, anxiety-provoking society. Now, when I read this, there were two words, the words that are in bold, that really jumped out to me. And it's these two words. Insecure, anxiety. Now, there's a lot in that description that we just read that is quite honestly not so true of us as Christians in America today. But this last phrase... We live in an insecure, anxiety-provoking society. This is absolutely true of the cultural moment and the experience that we have as Christians today. And what I want to do is take just a moment to talk for a, talk as honestly as I can about what I think the similarities and the differences are behind this insecure anxiety. And so to do this, I have some chicken scratches. Uh, inspired by some of Joe's chicken scratches in recent <laughs> sermons, and I already uh, feel my own sense of shame as there are people like Nicole and Brian in our midst who are amazing graphic designers, so I apologize to do this to you. But here, here is um, some chicken scratches that, that I think can help illustrate the differences and similarities behind this insecure anxiety that we experience. Now, when we think about the church that the, the message of Hebrews was written to, they were ex- experiencing external pressure. If you were listening to what William Lane said, he was talking about things like they could lose their property. They could lose their source of livelihood. They could lose their job. They would be excluded. They, they could be uh, shamed. Uh, they could go to prison. And so a lot of what was behind this insecure anxiety for them as Christians in their society was persecution. It was external pressure. But being publicly identified as a Christian, it caused anxiety because of persecution. And um, I will say that... uh, this sense of persecution or external pressure may exist for us as Christians today in our society also that can happen Um, but it's not it's not like this it's not like this so then what is the source of anxiety for many of us and I would say it's more internal pressure because you see, for those of us who, who, are, who have eyes to see what has been happening in the church in America more broadly, what we see is we see what I would describe as leadership failure. Leadership failure. What we have is we have leaders, so many different leaders, 
who we have trusted, whom we have learned from, who have helped us to have a sense of secure identity as Christians, who have helped us to believe that we're on the right track, that we understand who God is, that we understand the Bible, that give us a, a sense of our own security in this world, that there have been leaders who have fallen for different reasons. Some have been revealed that they've been living a double life. Others of them um, have, it's been revealed that they have been spiritually abusive. Others of those leaders, even if those things aren't true, what we see in their public life is they're advancing public policy or politics that seem to disregard other people who are made in the image of God. And so for many of us, we experience insecure anxiety about being identified as a Christian, not necessarily because we're being persecuted, but because we look within the church and it makes us question the truthfulness of what we have been believing in. How could it be that this is the God who we believe in when the people who are proclaiming that God live in ways that don't match who they say this God is. That's disorienting. That can evoke a lot of anxiety within us. And I will say, and we'll see this when we look at Hebrews chapter 5, that they experience some internal pressure too. The preacher of Hebrews says that those leaders in that church are not as mature as they ought to be. And again, there is external pressure for many of us as Christians when we publicly identify today. So I don't want to downplay that. That can be a very real thing that many of us experience. But we're not going to jail for being a Christian. And when we, when we have the mentality that we are sort of martyrs for being Christians in our cultural moment, it can give us blinders to the reality of the issues within the church that are real problems that we need to address. And so, the question is for us today is, how does the preacher of Hebrews uh, address this insecure anxiety? What, would, what might he have to say to us 2,000 years later and across the world? And so, this morning we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and we'll read these words together. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken on another day later on. 
So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did for his. Let me take a quick moment and pray for us. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to, to you. You are our God and you are our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so in, in light of this insecure anxiety, I want to take a moment and say, if you had difficulty connecting those ten verses to this problem of insecure anxiety, that's okay. There was a lot that we just read. And what we're going to try to do is kind of unpack the, the message that the preacher of Hebrews has in the midst of their insecure Anxiety. He wants them to know that their experience of insecure anxiety does not define their reality. That feeling of anxiety does not define their reality. What he wants them to know instead is that their lives are framed by rest. They are living in a story of rest. In which God rests, and in which God wants to and promises and really does offer sharing his own rest. But that is the story that they're living in if they choose to live into it. And so we see the story of rest in these ten verses in three different phases. The first we see is the first we see is God's rest from creation. This is phase one. And we see these verses at the end of verse three into verse four. It says, His works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. So the preacher wants this early church to know that God rested at creation on the seventh day. That when God created the world and he brought order to the chaos that existed, that when God completed his very, very good creation, when, he, when God completed creation, God rested. And that God continues to rest. That God continues to rest. And God's idea was that even as the first human beings in the garden were working, they could also experience rest at the same time, simultaneously with God in the garden. That somehow in God's perfect creation of the garden, they could work and experience rest, God's rest, at the same time. But of course, what happens in the garden, as we know, is that the first human beings distrust God and believe that they should rely on themselves to make their own lives happen, and that experience of rest is interrupted. They're passed out of the garden. And now they have thorns and thistles and work 
lives, they have pain, they have suffering, that, that rest is no longer a tangible experience. But God does not give up. God does not give up on allowing his human beings that he created in his own image to experience his rest. And so we see that the story continues into phase two. Israel's rest in the promised land. And you see this in verse 8. Verse 8 says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The preacher of Hebrews speaks of Joshua. Now Joshua immediately should clue us into a whole big story that the name Joshua represents. Joshua took over from Moses... And he led the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. Out of Egypt into the promised land. But there was a problem. Because even though God intended the promised land to be a place, an intermediate place where they could experience his rest yet again in a similar way to the way they did in the garden, Israel of old, like Adam and Eve, did not trust God. They did not trust that God was able to take care of them in the promised land. And the the creature of Hebrews talks about that distrust in a couple different ways. We see it first in verse 2. If you want to look with me there, it says, The message they heard, they being Israel, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so one way the preacher talks about the reason they couldn't experience this rest is because they were not united by faith with those who believed. They did not believe. They, they experienced disbelief. And he, the preacher of Hebrews talks about it a different way. In verse 6, he says, Those who formerly received the good news failed to enter that rest because of disobedience. And so on the one hand, we have disbelief. On the other hand, we have disobedience. And the preacher of Hebrews would say, disbelief and disobedience are the same thing. They're the same thing. And what I want to say is that that may sound kind of harsh to our ears. That disbelief is disobedience. That may sound harsh to us today. But I think the reason that disbelief is disobedience is because when we disbelieve, when we distrust, it means that we're putting our faith or we're putting our trust in something or someone other than God. That it's not just disbelief, but it's actually faith in someone or something else. Tim Keller says it this way in his book, reason for God. He says, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts, and then to ask yourself what reasons you have for believing it. I love this. It's so important. It's not just about our struggle with belief or our struggle with doubt. When we disbelieve, We are alternatively believing in someone or something else. And are we as thoughtful or critical about what else we're believing in as we are about our trust and faith in God? That is the struggle. That is the journey. 
that we have to that we have to embrace. Now, in another sense, there's often good reason to doubt. There are reasons why this insecure anxiety is a legitimate experience. Because, for example, when we look to leaders who fail us, it makes sense that that evokes an insecure anxiety. It makes sense. But we also have to wrestle with the reality of that. In the midst of that insecure anxiety, what do we do with those feelings? We still have a choice to make as far as where we will put our trust. And I think the writer of Hebrews wants to motivate this early church who was experiencing these same kinds of feelings to evaluate where are you placing your trust? Where is your rest? Where is your true rest? Because if it's not in the perfect work of Christ on your behalf, where are you going to find that rest? Where are you going to find it? And so this leads us to the third phase of the story. And that's rest in the new creation. In verses 9 and 10 of our passage, it says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest, For the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I really like N.T. Wright's translation of these same two verses. Listen to this. He says, Thus we conclude there is still a future Sabbath rest for God's people. Anyone who enters that rest will take a rest from their works. As God did from his. So again, the preacher of Hebrews wants this early church to hear that God's promise of rest still stands. That the same kind of rest that God experienced in creation still is offered to us today and will be experienced by God's people when Jesus reappears and to remake and to recreate and to renew the heavens and the earth. That there is a rest that will come. We sang earlier about singing by the river, by God's throne. There is a rest that is promised to us for those who are God's people. But what's fascinating about this passage is he talks about Sabbath keeping. He talks about Sabbath keeping. What the, right, the preacher of Hebrews seems to be wanting this early church to know is that there is a way to experience this future rest that is promised to us. There's a way to catch a glimpse, to catch a taste of that rest by keeping the Sabbath. By keeping the Sabbath. Now, it is so important that we don't hear this... Um, Exhortation for Sabbath keeping, for resting one of every seven days. We ought not hear that as a new legalism. Pastor Joe just last week, in reference to Dallas Willard, talked about this that the gospel of grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning or performing. Right? And if you think about it, if 
Sabbath-keeping becomes a performance where we think we can earn God's rest, then it's self-defeating in the first place. How can you perform to rest? But no, that's not what's on offer here. What's on offer here is that God already offers rest because He loves you and can take care of your life without you needing to take care of your own life. Thank you very much. He is able to care for you, and He offers you His rest because of the gospel, because of His grace. And so this exhortation towards keeping the Sabbath is not a duty that God wants to lay on you. It's an invitation to experience the grace of the rest that He wants to give you because He can take care of you better than you can take care of yourself. You know, in many ways, I would argue that um, it's very, very difficult to, to keep our Sabbath rest because we are so motivated in our culture by achievement and performance. But God calls us to make an effort to rest. I want to point our attention briefly to a theologian named Marva Don who talks very practically about Sabbath. She says, we must often take extra care to make it possible to rest from our labors on the Sabbath. Sometimes it means doing extra work the day before or spreading our work out throughout the week a bit better so that Sabbath keeping can be truly restful. If I'm going to teach on Monday, I need to do the final review of my plan on Saturday, which usually means double duty since I'm generally teaching on Sunday at church too and need to review those plans as well. But in the freedom I experience through the complete day of Sabbath rest, I continually find that the extra effort, here's that word, effort, to get everything done before Sunday is worth it. Let's not pretend that Sabbath keeping is easy. It takes extra effort to get work done throughout the week so that we can taste a glimpse of God's rest for us. Uh, my wife and I uh, have worked in full-time vocational ministry for many years. And for most of that time, if you talk to us about it, we were very honest that we were really bad at Sabbath keeping. We were really, really bad at resting. And part of the reason for that is that um, on the one hand, on an intellectual level, I think it's easy when we think of the Sabbath as Christians to think of Jesus' correction of the Pharisees and the Gospels and to see how Jesus corrected them for practicing the Sabbath in a, too, in, a, in a very legalistic way. And it's easy to stop there and then say, okay, well, then I guess Sabbath keeping isn't all that important. And, and we totally lose sight of Hebrews chapter 4. But Jesus didn't say the Sabbath doesn't matter. He just says doing it legalistically is the problem with it, the way the Pharisees were doing it. Jesus himself continued to practice Sabbath. Um, but it wasn't just that intellectual problem. Actually, it was the story of our culture that says you are what you achieve. You are what you produce. You are what you do. I don't know if we totally grasp how much that message penetrates our lives and our hearts. 
The church is not immune. In fact, I would argue that one of the major reasons for the failure of so many of the leaders that we were talking about is that that very message was embraced at a heart level and unaddressed. The reason I say that is because when you believe you are what you, you, what you achieve, if you believe your sense of security and identity is in your su- su- success, if it's in what you produce, then that causes you to use the people around you for your own success story. It's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing. We become pawns in the Christian leader's journey of proving his worth through what he accomplishes. This has caused so much harm. It genuinely has. And so, why does Sabbath keeping matter? Well, Sabbath-keeping matters because it helps us to love our neighbor. Sabbath-keeping matters because it helps us to have a heart posture where we really experience that our security and identity is found in God, that God takes care of us. I don't have to produce to be okay. I don't have to achieve to be okay. God gives me what I need. Practicing the Sabbath is a way to experience at least a taste of that so that we have a better chance of loving our neighbor as ourselves. So the preacher of Hebrews invites us to a different way of being this morning. He invites us to look into the mirror and to try to be honest with ourselves. Where are we placing our trust? What are we really looking to for rest? What do we really believe will provide what we need in the midst of our feelings of insecure anxiety? There can be good reason for those feelings. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't diminish that challenge. But what he does is say there is a rest that is available to you. Will you look to the source of where true rest is found. I want to close with this prayer from an ancient liturgy. I feel like it really wraps up and represents well this message. O God, for whom all holy desires, all good counsel, and all just works do proceed. Give unto your servants that peace that the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and also that by you, being defended from the fear of our enemies, we may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.